Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I want to kick things off this week by saying a massive thank you to all the listeners. In just over three months, we're almost at 10,000 listens, which is phenomenal. So to keep up the momentum, we've got a couple of really cool giveaways going on. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we're giving away a $250 gift pack full of superfoods, bone broths, resources, supplements, etc. So give us a review on iTunes, let us know, and you'll be entered in to win that prize, as well as if you hashtag Dr. Bubs PP, that's hashtag D-R-B-U-B-B-S, capital P, capital P, on Instagram or Twitter, you'll also automatically receive my free Keto Guide Quick Start ebook, which is a 35-page ebook on how to jump into a keto lifestyle. So again, thanks so much for all the listening and uh, on to today's show. I've got a phenomenal guest for you today. We're going to talk all things digestion. He is an Oxford and Cambridge graduate. Dr. Tommy Wood will take a deep dive into all things gut microbiota. He will discuss some of the keystone bacteria like Ackermansia and Bifidobacteria. He'll discuss some of the root causes of dysbiosis, which is too much bad bacteria in the gut, which is antibiotic use, stress, sleep, and NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, just to name a few. He'll also dive into the performance side of things and how intense exercise has a dramatic effect on the gut health, uh, including inducing something called leaky gut. So he'll dive into that as well as solutions around testing, diet, exercise, and lifestyle to help mitigate some of these effects. So as always, I'll be posting my layups and performance hacks on the drbubs.com forward slash podcast page, as well as the coffee talk with Tommy, really good one this week, and uh, hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Tommy Wood. Dr. Tommy has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. Alongside his career in medicine and research, he has published and spoken on multiple topics surrounding functional and holistic approaches to health and examining the root causes of disease, such as multiple sclerosis and insulin resistance using engineering techniques. Tommy is also the Chief Medical Officer of Nourish Balance Thrive, an online-based company using advanced biochemical testing to optimize performance in athletes. Close to 1,000 athletes have been through the NBT program, from weekend warriors to Olympians and world champions. Tommy has coached and competed in multiple sports, including rowing, ultra-endurance events, CrossFit, and powerlifting. He also holds positions as President-Elect of Physicians for Ancestral Health, a director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and a member of the Lifestyle Medicine Global Alliance Advisory Board. Tommy, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us today. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. Tommy, that's a really eclectic and impressive background. Can you give us a little uh, background on how you got into the health space around this and the functional medicine space? Yeah, that's um, every time I tell this story, it always comes out slightly differently because I never know exactly what sort of got me here. But I think it's like it almost I guess like it almost sounds it's sort of a lot of happy accidents sort of end up where you are or sort of push you to where you are at a given point um sort of as, as a kid I was very uninterested in health and fairly overweight didn't do any exercise or anything like that and then sort of in my late teens started to try sort of um develop an interest in it and actually it was something that so my mum has been 
very interested in health her entire life and always tried to force it on other members of the family, you know, nutrition and all that, all that good stuff. And I actually, I recently looked at her bookshelf. Um, I was back at her house and sort of lo- looked at all these books that have been on her, her shelves for like 20 years and I'm reading through them and like all the stuff in there is stuff that I talk about now, right? So she was, reading, <laughs> that's awesome. she was reading about it in the 80s, right? Nothing's changed, you know, all this stuff, the stuff that's important now is that it was important then. Um, anyway, so, so then I went to um, do my undergraduate degree, uh, got a bachelor's degree in, in biochemistry and spent a lot of, actually spent most of my time rowing. I picked up rowing when I went to Cambridge. That's one of the things you do at Cambridge is row. And through that time, um, sort of tried to find, find out more about, um, nutrition and training. I started doing quite a lot of coaching, uh, which I then spent more of my time doing when I was at uh, medical school at Oxford. Um, so I ended up being head coach of the medical school boat club and sort of, you know, read about, nutrition and training and you know the crossfit was just sort of starting at the time and they were big into the paleo thing and that kind of you know area of food and and health and then towards the end of medical school and I never really got that into into that kind of stuff but sort of thought it was interesting and knew it existed and then towards the end of medical school um my stepdad who is a chemical engineer, um, sort of enlisted me as part of this project, which was to try and figure out multiple sclerosis because my stepbrother had just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Wow. And so we, what we did is what, what chemical engineers are really good at doing is solving problems. That's basically their job. And we basically read a thousand papers on multiple sclerosis and tried to figure out all the different potential factors that could be important um, and sort of built this huge model of multiple sclerosis um, using it's a technique called systems analysis. Um, and from that, you know, we, we published a paper and there are more papers sort of on the way. And we did sort of spoke at various conferences about that stuff. And that sort of brought me back into the uh, different aspects of food and health and genetics and micronutrients and disease that can sort of affect chronic disease. And um, then there was a sort of like a bit of a break in that stuff when I was working as a a junior doctor in the UK for a couple of years, just because when you're essentially an internal early resident, which is the equivalent, you know, you just don't really have any mental uh, real estate to do anything other than eat, sleep and work. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, and then, and then I went, uh, I was offered a, a spot to do a, a PhD in Norway. And sort of as part of that, you get more time to sit down at a desk, read papers, read PubMed, and then, you know, got back into all that sort of stuff that I was interested in and listened to lots of other podcasts, you know, guys like Chris Cresser, Rob Wolf, um, sort of got me interested in it. And um, then from there, read more, started a blog, started a podcast, started sort of offering myself to speak at conferences and things like that, as you do as you're sort of getting into this area. And, you know, over time, I met up with Chris Kelly, who was one of the co-founder of Nourish Balance Thrive, and we met just sort of online and I basically badgered him with complex um, ideas and papers. I just sent him like 10 papers a day for a year. And then he was like, all right, stop bothering me and just come and be part of the company. And um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And so I sort of became absorbed into the company as the chief medical officer. And that's sort of what I'll end up doing uh, full time. So I still do some research at the moment as a uh, postdoc um, here at the University of Washington in Seattle now, but sort of I'll move towards doing that that other stuff full time. That's terrific, and I mean, 
you know, for myself and, uh, and growing up playing a lot of sport, you know, digestive health and dysfunction was kind of a big part of, of, of problems I had earlier on and the solutions from the medical community were, were quite limited. And I know that's an area, you know, in, in your, in your guys' uh, program that's, that's pretty um, important. Can you give us a little bit of uh, a background on, on some of the things that you're seeing in athletes and if you yourself even experienced any of these kind of things in terms of when you were rowing or, or competing at all? Yeah, d- definitely. I think mo- most athletes and, you know, the, the literature supports that too, is that most athletes have some kind of um, gastrointestinal GI distress at some point, either upper, you know, upper GI, there's sort of, you know, reflux or uh, heartburn or nausea or whatever, or, you know, lower symptoms and they have diarrhea, constipation, something like IBS. And, you know, that most sports, particularly running, I think is, is the, the, um, is the most most common in runners but definitely definitely um in almost all athletes and you don't really i think you just people just accept that it's part of what it is to be an athlete you know that's just oh that's part of it and don't really worry about it um but if i think back to my rowing days there were definitely parts you know i I can particularly during uh times of we had very intense training very intense competition you know i wouldn't have a i wouldn't have a solid bowel movement for days or weeks um, and, you know, just sort of didn't really think about it. And, you know, I also think at the same time, you know, we used to come off the water and there would, we had this chest in the, um, in the changing room, which I was, ca- I was captain at the time of, of, of my boat club. And I used to fill it up regularly and it was just full of like bread and sweets and cookies and, and all this kind of stuff that I think is definitely contributing to these um, symptoms in a lot of people. And we'd come straight off the water and just like pile that stuff in because it was important to refuel and all that stuff. For sure. um, and, and this is what I think, you know, most, most people are doing because that's what we're told is important. Um, and what we're starting to see, what we see a lot of is is almost everybody that comes to us at Nourish Balance Thrive, um, and they tend to be athletes, but just other people with you know other chronic uh, health conditions too. They almost all have some kind of digestive distress, you know, um, either they have uh, long term constipation or just you know really terrible gas and bloating or you know chronic diarrhea. You know, all of this is 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 very common, and everybody sort of falls on that spectrum somewhere, and that's why we. Uh, we really do focus on what obviously goes in in your mouth, like what could potentially be be causing those problems, or at least setting the gut up so that you're you're getting issues down there. Um, and then also, you know, doing some stool testing and urine testing to see if you know there's any kind of overgrowth of, of anything that might be causing a problem, or you know, a dysbiosis or or whatever. And a, lo- a lot of people have, um, you know, various things, parasites that they've picked up along the way, and. I think maybe that's part of part of being an athlete to sort of set yourself up for set yourself up for future problems. And it's the combination of the training plus plus the diet that does that. And then, you know, once you sort those out, you can you can really see a great turnaround in some of those symptoms. That's that's terrific. I mean, it definitely, you know, we, we see from the research that, as you mentioned, there's so much digestive distress with really pushing yourself at an elite level. And then for the rest of the population who are you know overweight and consuming too many sugars and carbohydrates, we see some some dysbiosis and issues that come along with that now can you can you start everyone from the from the ground up here and give us a, a definition of what really the microbiome is and perhaps some of the key players some of those keystone bacteria that set up a healthy gut yeah of course um so i guess the um 
the correct term we say is the gut microbiota. So the the everybody says microbiome. That's just become the way it is now. So I don't. I think I, I use that too. So so the gut microbiome is is basically covers um, all the species that live within the gut, and there should be. Um, there was a recent piece of research that so we used to say that there were ten times as many bacteria in the gut as there are as there were cells in the human body, um, but then there was some recent research that said it's maybe closer to one to one rather than ten to one. But still, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bugs in there. There's a lot of bugs for sure. Yeah, and it's really you know it's a symbiotic relationship. You know, they definitely uh, they definitely thrive such that they try and help us do the job that we're trying to do. If that makes sense. So. If we've created an environment where we're putting food in that's very calorie dense and we're trying to assimilate all those calories because you don't actually want to, the, the human body isn't designed to excrete any of the calories it doesn't want or doesn't digest. So then those bacteria in the gut help you do that. Um, and that's part of the sort of the problems we have in terms of the changes changes in the gut microbiome and to, in sort of metabolic disease, you know, diabetes and obesity. And, you know, it, it, we talk a lot about uh, bacteria, but there's also um, uh, fungi in there and viruses. You know, they all sort of form part of this normal community. And when we look at what we think should be part of a healthy gut, um, there's there's some good data both from you know, animal studies where we obviously have to start all the time. And then also human studies looking at um, ancestral populations or, you know, hunter gatherers. Um, and we see things like uh, Acomantia. Acomantia mucinophilia is, is basically a, a bug that really likes the mucus layer of the gut. So we're supposed to have this really nice, healthy mucus layer that sort of runs down the inside of, of the gut uh, epithelium. And that sort of gives us a nice, a nice protective barrier against, you know, what's going on. Um, in the gut while we're digesting things and you know if if that layer doesn't exist for whatever reason you know because of it's usually due to some kind of inflammatory process or a pathogenic uh, bacteria then we lose our acomantia and acomantia is really good at supporting other beneficial players um things like particularly butyrate producers uh maybe like rosaburia people might have heard of afficalobactium prasnitzii those are really thought to to be beneficial uh, butyrate producers they sort of help produce a uh, uh, a nice healthy gut lining the butyrate is really important there to sort of support the gut uh, but equally they can sort of become um, if they become a very large pop part of the population then actually they could sort of help support um, energy uh, energy uptake so they could actually be you know sort of be part of the problem in terms of um, in terms of something like obesity but then this is why it all comes down to balance so you can't just say that something's good something's bad most of the stuff are things that we'd find there anyway but then when they sort of go out of when it comes out of kilter out of balance and then you get just an overgrowth of, of one type of thing or two or three types of types of bacteria then you start to see problems um, and then on, to on top of those one thing that we talk about a lot uh, which is definitely really important are the bifidobacteria um, which tend to be lost in both metabolic disease and you know any sort of chronic inflammatory disease and we we really try it's sometimes it's difficult to pick up it's sort of difficult to grow um, it's not always easy to find on a dna sequencing but when you can find it and you there are some tests where you can do that then you know we we often see a loss of bifidobacteria and i think that that's a, a big part of of the shift that we've seen in in terms of um in terms of the unhealthy guts that we're fostering so those are kind of those those kind of those guys sort of provide we know that they are all associated uh, with a sort of a nice healthy gut so if 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 we can see them and find them then that usually makes us uh, pretty happy excellent um and in terms of if we look at 
let's say both populations, let's look at athletes, but also even general population. Like what are some of the things in our diet, in our environment, whether it's stress or sleep that would trigger um, some changes in this, uh, in the microbiota? Yeah, um, I think um, particularly if we're talking about the environment in general, uh, you can't really talk about it without talking about antibiotics. Um, and we know, so if you're talking about sort of the medical population, then we think a lot about uh, C. difficile. So um, if you take certain particularly broad spectrum antibiotics, then you get an overgrowth of uh, C. diff, which is like a normal or uh, a normal commensal bacteria is, you know, is supposed to be there. But, you know, if it sort of is allowed to um, overgrow and then it can sometimes produce toxins and that can really cause, you know, um, I mean, it, it's a cause of death in the elderly, particularly uh, because it can be, you know, cause a really nasty colitis in, inflammation in, in the colon. Um, but what tends to happen when when you take antibiotics is both you sort of not you knock back some of the beneficial species so you might say something like oxalobacter which is really important for breaking down oxalate in foods and oxalates can sort of bind heavy metals in the body they can cause uh, kidney stones you know um, which we tend to see fairly frequently especially in people who've taken uh, long-term antibiotics probably because they've knocked out the oxalobacter so you can kind of knock out knock out uh, the beneficial species, but at the same time, you sort of change um, the environment in the gut in general. You change some of the availability of some of um, some of the um, sort of sugars and things in there, and that kind of promotes the growth of of, of certain types of bacteria over others. So then you see sort of a lot more um, uh, like E. coli and Enterobacter and things like that, um, and then you you lose some of those other beneficial species. So. Antibiotics are definitely a big one, um, and there's some really interesting data um, which uh, coming out of Sebastian Winter's lab. Uh, I think he's he's in Texas. I can't remember ex which university right now, but they've they've looked at the effect of inflammation, uh, just general inflammation on uh, the bacterial species in the gut, and what what you see is again um, when you have some kind of inflammation, it shifts the species that can grow in that environment. And you you tend to lose the bacteria that like um, an anaerobic, so like a who, who like not having oxygen in the gut, which is which tends to be most of the sort of uh, commensal bacteria that, that live in the gut. And you get an increase in the bacteria that can use oxygen. And to do with if, if you if the gut lining is inflamed, then sort of the ability of the gut lining to, to burn fat is changed and then you have more oxygen in the gut and then these other bacteria take over and particularly um, E. coli, pathogenic E. coli can sort of take over there. So then you need to look for what's causing that, uh, that gut inflammation. And, you know, you, you mentioned stress and sleep and those are, you know, both very important um, in terms of like inflammatory stimuli if you don't have those under control. Um, other sort of any kind of food intolerance, obviously, uh, you know, celiac disease is or inflammatory bowel disease, you know, sort of like autoimmune processes, you know, they're definitely, um, that's where we sort of look at a lot of these things to start with, because we know there's something, you know, going on in the gut that's, you know, definitely a pathological. And then we sort of can, can transfer some of that knowledge over to sort of more chronic or, or um, sort of smoldering conditions. Um, we definitely see something similar uh, in insulin resistance that seems to affect, you know, the the integrity of the gut lining. Um, and then, uh, like like you mentioned, in, in athletes, um, particularly as the intensity increases, time spent above sort of 90% VO2 max really decreases um, the blood flow to the gut. So um, when you have these large swings in blood flow to an organ, so like if people think of a stroke or a heart attack, if you then 
re, sort of you lose the blood flow to the to the to the heart or the brain, and then if you reperfuse that, so then as the blood comes back, you've had this build up of uh, metabolites and things, and actually the reperfusion, the blood coming back, is part of the injury. And we see something very similar in athletes. So if they become dehydrated, spent a lot of time doing very intense exercise, then as the blood flow returns to the gut, then that seems to cause you know some some damage to the gut lining. So there's definitely a, a potential interaction there. Um, and you mentioned, like we've, I mean, probably spent a lot of time talking about, you know, refined carbohydrates and sugars and things. And they, you know, the, the bacteria lower down in the gut in the colon, those are the ones that we talk about a lot. Um, they need non-digested food stuff to survive, right? They need like non-starch polysaccharides and all these other things that sort of don't don't get digested in the stomach or, and don't get absorbed in the small intestine and that sort of feeds them in the colon. But if you're eating a very refined diet, then most of those calories are going to be in the, in the upper parts of the gut and that sort of almost causes them to shift upwards in, 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 in search for food at all. You starve out the ones that aren't getting sort of the food that they want. So that, that having that highly refined diet definitely uh, contributes to that picture too. Yeah, it's a great point you mentioned there around uh, athletes training at high intensity because definitely those sort of elite weekend warriors, if you will, that are really pushing themselves, you know, if they don't really periodize their training effectively or fall back on just sort of that, you know, more is better, pushing as hard as we can, that, that training at 90% greater VO2 max is pretty common. And we tend to see a lot of issues with uh, gut dysfunction in that group. Yeah, definitely. And can you touch on uh, you know the use of NSAIDs? Obviously, really still prevalence. Whether it's weekend yeah. warriors or even professional athletes is sort of the go-to. Uh, you'll even see clients starting to take it before they train, knowing that they're going to be in discomfort after <laughs> their CrossFit class or powerlifting session or or training. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the NSAIDs aren't on my list, but they're you know so so important. And, and people, I think it's starting. People are starting to realize that. Well, first of all. You know, NSAIDs, they uh, have a dramatic effect on, on gut permeability. So, you know, that ability of, of the gut to have this nice, nice barrier against the outside world, which is, you know, the all of the stuff inside your gut is, is technically the outside world and you want a barrier against that. And NSAIDs definitely, um, definitely sort of disrupt that barrier. And, you know, people sort of taking them, taking those NSAIDs chronically actually, you know, almost exacerbate the problem because if you're if you're um, decreasing the integrity of the gut lining you're increasing peripheral inflammation which is going to increase pain in your joints and, and whatever other symptoms you know maybe headaches or things whatever it is you're taking the NSAIDs for in the first place and you know actually the best way to to sort of stop that cycle is to stop taking the NSAIDs and you know people I think people like I said people are starting to realize it but you know your risk of heart attacks and strokes from chronic NSAID use you know is, is dramatically increased so you know you could maybe use them you know for one or two days max if you really need to but other than that it's something that you really should try and avoid. Definitely. I mean, I think you're, you're right in the sense that people are starting to get uh, starting to think about that a little more, even on the professional level, which is great. Um, and you mentioned something there around the obviously the impact on NSAIDs on on intestinal hyperpermeability. Can you can mm -hmm. you speak to that and sort of define leaky gut for the docs and nutritionists and, and strength coaches listening in and and give us uh, some of the trickle down effects if we start to see this um, leaky gut start taking root in our athletes? Yeah, definitely. So uh, leaky gut or intestinal permeability was. Um, was actually a, it was it was a term that was first I think it was first described by um, electrophysiologists so guys who basically take 
they take small bits of the body and then they put electrodes in them and kind of measure, you know, ion transfer or the movement of ions. And um, so it started with um, something called an Ussing chamber, which was used to look at the, the transfer of ions first in frog skin and then they started taking uh, bits of intestine uh, you know first from mice and then you can also do it in humans or other animals and you basically put it in this chamber and you look at how um, ions uh, move across this barrier and in certain scenarios to so say if you have some kind of disease state then those that that barrier is more permeable and then you get you get a, a change in how those ions move across so there was kind of that was the technical definition of intestinal permeability sort of from a, a you know a, a science experimental standpoint and then you know as, as most things happen you know this sort of gets expanded and a lot of things sort of come under intestinal permeability um and you know one of the one of if you just think of it if, if you want to think of it in in simple terms it's just that if you have all these cells lying in the gut they, the cells obviously act as a barrier, but then there's space between the cells, um, and they normally have these nice tight junctions. They're called tight junctions, which holds the cells together, you know, really firmly and stops stuff getting through that you don't want to get through. Because normally you have transport through the cells, so the cells can decide what they want, pick it up, move it across the cell, and then move it out the back, essentially into the bloodstream, and then it goes to wherever it's meant to go. But if if you lose the connection between those cells, then basically anything can come in unregulated. It's basically like you know opening the door in your fence. Um, uh, can sort of then anybody can come in and out. And there are there are kind of a there are a number of ways that you can you can look at that. So it's very popular for a while uh, to look at something called a lactulose and mannitol test. So you basically give a very big sugar lactulose that shouldn't be absorbed um, and mannitol which is a small uh, sugar and can be absorbed and then you look at the ratio of those in the urine so they're not metabolizers sort of go in they get excreted and if you if you have if, if the ratio between those changes you're sort of absorbing more lactulose than you should then that's that's associated with intestinal permeability that test you know people some people like it some people don't it's very difficult to standardize so but it definitely seems to be, you know, you definitely see an increase in what you think is permeability associated with all these diseases where we think we have intestinal permeability. Um, so, you know, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, all of these diseases are associated with increased permeability of the gut. So there's that. And then you can also look at um, circulating bacterial toxins, which do get across the gut, but they shouldn't get across in large numbers. Um, and then, you know, you can also look at um, circulating zonulin or antibodies against zonulin. And zonulin is that protein in the, in the tight junctions that um, sort of holds those cells together. So if, if you've got more of that circulating around in the blood, it's not where it should be in the, in the sort of the gut barrier. And you see an increase in zonulin in, you know, obesity type 2 diabetes. So we think that that's associated with more gut permeability there. And then you can also like measure some stuff in the stool, sort of um, calprotectin or sec uh, secretory IgA sort of that are associated with an inflammatory condition because we think that increases gut permeability. So basically anything that is associated with um, uh, is associated with that kind of a breakdown of that barrier between the cells we think increases gut permeability and you know almost every disease particularly the chronic inflammatory diseases where they've looked at it there seems to be an increase in, in gut permeability so um uh, obesity fatty liver type 2 diabetes um like we talked about inflammatory uh, bowel conditions but also things like rheumatoid arthritis so if they go looking for it they usually find it now that doesn't necessarily mean that the 
that the uh, intestinal permeability is causing the disease, but it certainly um, isn't going to help matters because we know that if you're getting things like bacterial toxins or uh, partially digestive foodstuffs, if they're coming across the gut wall and into the bloodstream where they're, they're not supposed to be, then they can stimulate an inflammatory, uh, you know, an inflammatory reaction, activate the immune system, and then you're going to get some of those um, downstream processes that contribute to, contribute to the disease. Absolutely. I mean, you know, from a athletic side as well, you know, what would you say if I was a weekend warrior athlete, elite, you know, really pushing myself and you're seeing elevated levels of calprotectin, secretory IgA, and we're seeing this sort of a uh, picture of this intestinal permeability or leaky gut, what, what would you, how would you walk someone through the implications then on their training or to convince them that this is something they need to address? Yeah. So often we have, so we, we look at those on the stool and often, um, and, you know, so we have nice, um, nice reference ranges from like the experimental data from research. So they can sort of they they're being um, absorbed into sort of some of these uh, stool tests that that you can now use uh, with with patients. And so at the same time, you can usually see. Um, so if you see, you know, elevated calprotectin or lysozyme or something associated with, you know, in, an inflamed gut, um, then you usually see something else that's going to be potentially associated with that. So you look at um, the bacteria that that are there. So you might have like an overgrowth of certain bacteria that are really um, good at producing toxins that can activate sort of an inflammatory process. So um, maybe Enterobacter cloacae or Citrobacter freundii. So like these, they're meant to be in the gut, but if they if they overgrow, they can cause issues. Um, or you see like high E. coli or low bifidobacteria, or again, you know, yeasts or parasites. You know, they they tend to be very common. So usually we see something that's you know some kind of pathogen or dysbiotic process that's associated with that inflammation. So we we can say, look, you know, so when people come to us, they usually have some symptoms usually some gi symptoms or they just they don't sleep well or they don't recover well and so we can we can definitely start by talking to them about the fact that we're seeing some inflammation we're seeing some some problematic you know processes or balances of, of bacteria in the gut um and so and then we also look at things like you know the standard blood test so you can look at inflammatory markers crp uh liver markers to make you know because obviously anything bad that's going on in the gut has direct access to the liver and you can see an elevation of liver enzymes so usually there's there's a there's a picture that's associated with that inflammation or you know inflammation in the gut and we can say the the current approach that you're taking be it dietary be it lifestyle um be it other supplements you're taking maybe maybe this person's taking a lot of NSAIDs um is obviously, you know, causing or, or is associated with this sort of negative shift that you're happening. And that's going to be one of the sort of the root underlying causes of your recent drop in performance or your inability to increase your performance. You know, you're training harder and you're, you're not getting any better. Maybe you're getting worse. And so that kind of people understand that they can see all that data. They can understand there's something going on there. And then they're much more likely uh, to, to undertake sort of the lifestyle and dietary changes, say, you know, maybe take some supplements to kind of clear out some of those bacteria that we don't want. Um, and then that's going to get them back, you know, feeling better, training harder and, and performing better again. Hundred percent. I mean, I, when we run these tests in clinic, it's a you know, like you mentioned, sort of like the lights in the dashboard of the car, being able to see between the symptoms and the blood test yeah. and the gut function test. All of a sudden, they're getting a picture for for what's going on in sort of the the, the engine, if you will, the athlete's engine, and they're 
all of a sudden those dietary changes that seem perhaps uh, minimal or small or that sleep piece or the stress piece, it all starts to make sense to them. And then the, uh, it's amazing how compliance starts to go up incredibly once you have some of those, uh, some of those metrics, right? Yeah. So one of the, I mean, one of the most important reasons to have the tests, I mean, the, da- the data is, is really important, right? Cause it tells you, it gives you a much better idea of what you should be doing, what you should be, you know, changing, but you know, nothing, nothing, um, especially in athletes, you know, these guys are super attuned, uh, to how their body performs, you know, every, you know, usually, you know, all, I mean, they usually focus on training, right? You train harder, do this, this will make you faster, but they're, you know, really, focused on you know the sort of type a personality so if you give them a task and you give them data and they see these lights on the dashboard they see all these numbers in the red and they're like i'm going to change that i'm going to make that number green you know and then you've sort of given them this thing that they can quantify this thing that they can sort of actually understand and see and then that's going to make it you know because before you're like you know would you you know cut out sugar and they're like oh you know i don't eat that much sugar or you know cut out this i you know i you know how's your sleep oh i don't sleep too bad you know all of those things that are sort of a bit gray, all of a sudden they really understand why it's important. And then they're still going to work much harder to sort of make, to, to get that improvement. Absolutely. Now, how do, um, endotoxins or lipopolysaccharides, how do those fit into the mix here when we talk leaky gut and implications on whether it's disease or in athletes? Yes. So, um, lipopolysaccharides, um, for for people who don't know, um, or call them endotoxins too. So they're basically, they sit in the, in the outer wall, or outer lip and membrane of gram-negative bacteria. Um, so people might remember if they did um, high school biology or, you know, uh, from medical school, the two broad types of bacteria, um, the gram-negative and gram-positive. And the gram-negative bacteria have these endotoxins that kind of sit in the outer wall, and they're very good at stimulating the immune system. So we have, um, as part of the innate immune system, we have uh, these toll-like receptors that bind to uh, different things, so could be viruses, gram-negative, gram-positive bacteria. They activate the immune system to try and clear those out. And so these like li- these lipopolysaccharides, they are if you if you look at them in the bloodstream or you look at them coming across the gut wall, you see more of them in people who are insulin resistant, obese, have some kind of um, ongoing uh, inflammatory process, and that's almost certainly associated back to that um that gut permeability so obviously some comes across the gut wall and we can't really do do anything about that there's always going to be bacteria there there's always going to be some translocation of bacteria across and our bodies are obviously very um, good at dealing with that that's sort of part of why we have that i mean that innate immune system but if we're sort of increasing the translocation of those bacteria it's definitely associated with some degree of metabolic disease and like i mentioned earlier so the liver obviously gets the first load of blood that comes from the gut. So, you know, in people who have intestinal permeability or, you know, a, um, a sort of a preponderance of the bacteria that, that have these endotoxins, that's definitely associated with things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and sort of a, a chronic inflammatory process going on in the liver as it deals with these toxins. And the, the bacteria that, that, that cause those issues have these LPS molecules that can be damaging. They, they're the ones that um, sort of increase in, in um, abundance when you have this this inflammatory process. So they tend to be 
they're called prote the proteobacteria. So we talked about E. coli, which can which tends to grow better in um, an inflammatory environment, an inflamed environment versus other bacteria. Um, you know, other things like Enterobacter, Helicobacter, so H. pylori. I mentioned Citrobacter earlier, but then also things like Klebsiella pseudomonas. So all of those are these uh, proteobacteria that have these LPS molecules um, in in their walls that, that can then cause this sort of inflammatory process. And when when you're doing anything that, that increases the, tr the translocation of, of these across the gut wall, then you're you're sort of putting yourself at risk of some some of these sort of underlying metabolic problems. And, you know, so we talked about a very intense exercise. And, you know, I, I always think about this when I talk about the gut in athletes, I always think about this study of, of ultramarathon runners um, where I think they ran I think it was a hundred kilometer race and then they then they looked at their stool and 87 percent of these athletes had occult blood in the stool so basically all of them were bleeding into their in into their stool uh through the gut because that sort of that that nice healthy membrane is sort of completely disintegrated with that sort of um with that long period of running so qualifies for intense that, training right yeah or you know absolutely so you know we see a lot of people who who spend so much time you know this kind of you know there's this theory of polarized training where you sort of do very low level aerobic below your aerobic threshold or you do very high high intensity stuff above your anaerobic threshold but you don't spend much time in the middle sort of between your aerobic and anaerobic thresholds and you know people who spend a lot of time in there in that sort of gray area in between those are the, you know, and the, that's that's what most people do, right? They go for a ride and they just like push themselves really, really hard for an hour. They go for a run and they push themselves really, really hard for an hour. And that you spend all your time in that sort of gray zone in the middle. And that's where you're going to get some of these problems because you're spending so much time at this intensity that the body can't necessarily handle. And that's when you're going to start to see that, that gut breaking down. Um, and then sort of similar things that are associated with that is, you know, a highly refined uh, highly refined sugars and highly refined fats, sort of liquid fats, also seem to be very good at translocating those those bacteria across the gut wall. So anybody who's eating a diet that consists of that, and you know, and you add that on to like a really heavy training session, you know, sort of double whammy, and you're going to get a lot more of that stuff, um, a lot more of those endotoxins coming across the gut wall, and then wreaking havoc elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point with the heavy glycolytic training because that's often something that, you know, trainers working with clients or people coming into docs, the average person just ends up spending so much time in that glycolytic gray zone that you mentioned there yeah. of adding more spin classes or more runs at the same intensity. And we just yeah. sort of keep hammering the same uh, energy systems that have already adapted and muscle fiber types. And now you're layering on this idea around digestive function and how that's being uh, negatively impacted. So it's, you know, it's, it's no wonder that people are, are getting stalled with their progress on not only the fitness side, but also the health side. So with all that said, what are, you know, can you give us some general ideas around solutions in terms of, is there some uh, low fidelity or high fidelity testing that people could start out with? What, what are some of the approaches on the, on the diet side? Yeah. So in terms of the testing, um, what, what we do, so we, we do a sort of like an extensive, um, blood testing panel, which covers all of the basics that, you know, doctors would expect to see. So you have like, uh, the CVC and like, uh, a chemistry covering like liver function and kidney function and all that stuff. And then, you know, we obviously do like basic cholesterol markers, infl inflammatory markers, all of that stuff is, is really important, I think. Um, and then sort of if, if we then go into some of the, like the stool testing, so um, uh, doctors' data do like a comprehensive stool analysis with parasitology. We use that. There's the diagnostic solutions, GI map, 
Um, there's also things like uh, the biohealth, uh, parasitology, uh, Geneva do like a GIFX, which also sort of looks at both some of the parasitic um, or, you know, dysbiotic or problematic bacteria, but then also looks at things like diversity. So all of those tests kind of give you a good idea. And most of them also look at some of those inflammatory markers we talked about. So like calprotectin, uh, secretory IgA, stuff like that. So that can kind of give you a really good baseline. Um, in terms of in terms of um, the other stuff that we can do, so we talked about, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, sleep and stress and, you know, really focusing on those because any sort of uh, chronic inflammatory or, you know, chronically stressful um, scenario, which definitely occurs with like sleep deprivation, then that's then that's sort of going to can easily be an initiator that then sort of start you on this on this uh, positive uh, feedback loop of sort of uh, affecting the gut or affecting the microbiome of the gut and then sort of causing these causing these problems um in general exercise is beneficial for the gut um the gut microbiome so um the the problem comes when when people are spending all that time in that sort of in that sort of gray zone and there's there's good data starting to come out now that actually you're, you're better off spending more time at either end of the spectrum rather than spending all your time in the middle um so you know definitely look at your training program and see whether you're spending all your time around you know around threshold and sort of beating yourself up there um in terms of the diets i think this is where things start to get really interesting so i know uh, both you and I are very interested in like low carb approaches, ketogenic approaches, um, and it's really interesting that that anything that improves um, weight or metabolic health also seems to improve the health of the gut. So that could be anything from fasting. Um, you know, obviously, if you go low carb or, or ketogenic and you and you lose weight, then that 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 seems to be associated with you know improved gut health, you know, you know, reduced, um, reduced toxins coming across the gut wall, um, or anything that causes weight loss, anything that improves uh, insulin resistance will also do that. Um, but I think there's a, there's sort of like a, there's, there's a balancing effect here because, um, there's an interesting theory. Uh, people might know of Paul Jaminet. He, he talks a lot about the fact that you need some carbohydrate to produce the mucin layer of, of, of the gut. Um, and so people who go on ketogenic diets, sort of the, his, his theory was that you sort of don't have those basic building blocks to build a nice, healthy gut lining. I'm not sure how much evidence there really is for that. I think there's some animal evidence, but um, that may or may not be an issue in the people who are like eating zero carbohydrates. Uh, but equally, if you're an athlete, I don't think there are many athletes who do well eating zero carbohydrates, you know, if they really want to perform. Um, but if you're also on sort of like a low carb type approach, which can be really good for getting people's, you know, metabolic health back, at least initially, um, what happens is you end up eating a lot, you end up eating or drinking a lot of refined fats. Um, so I think like bulletproof coffee, stuff like that, that's actually, you know, if you look in the in the research, if they want to increase endotoxins coming across the gut wall, they get people to drink heavy cream, which is basically the same as drinking bulletproof coffee. It's like this emulsified liquid fat that's really good at um, sort of bringing uh, toxins across the gut wall. So in a certain subset of people, particularly in the athletes that we see, if they've sort of come in and they've had some kind of crappy gut to start with, and then they just sort of they remove all these refined sugars and carbs and that's great but then they just start pouring loads of bulletproof coffee down the hatch fat that bombs sort of, and everything else yeah those fat bombs they're like they are they're literally um like endotoxin delivery vehicles as well so if you don't sort of fix the gut first i think you can definitely cause some problems there and and equally 
you know, fat pumps don't have any nutritional value. So like, obviously they're calories, but that's about it. Um, so you really need to think about the quality of the food that's coming in too. And for me, I think it's really important to eat vegetables. Um, and again, there'll be a lot of people, you know, maybe a lot of people listen to this and be like, the evidence for eating vegetables and fiber, you know, really isn't that good. And, you know, humans were meant to just eat meat and fat and fine. If, if you feel good eating that way, you know, all power to you. I'm, I'm very happy for people to eat however, you know, whatever, however makes them feel good. Um, but, you know, we talked about those bacteria that, um, that sort of thrive in the colon are associated with a healthy gut lining, you know, so bifido, acomantia, and those other guys. And they really seem to increase when you increase, you know, those sort of non-starch polysaccharides, non-digestible sort of, I mean, I guess they sort of fall under the, the, the branch of fibers, but sort of those cell walls from plants and things, really good for sort of feeding those bacteria. So I always tell people to eat more, you know, more plants, especially. And then, um, plant-based polyphenols so all those things that make vegetables and fruits bright colors um those are also you know really good at increasing some of some of those populations of bacteria in the gut so if you're if you're somebody who who has sort of started to change the way you eat but maybe you haven't increased your your intake of plants or your polyphenols or you know maybe you want to have some more turmeric some more green tea some more you know blackberries all of that stuff is great um and that can sort of sort of help improve um help improve the gut there um alongside that we tend to we often use probiotics um they the probiotics sort of you're giving bacteria that that, that go you know into the mouth and hopefully some of it ends up in the gut and we've actually in independently tested uh, some of these probiotics through a postdoc called lauren peterson who's working on something called the athlete gut project and so we're pretty happy with what we're recommending to people we know it contains what we think it contains these, these bacteria don't necessarily populate the gut, but they definitely seem to sort of help a transition. So if you're, if you're trying to, you know, create a better environment in the gut, sort of adding these bacteria in can definitely sort of help facilitate that. And then you can also, you can, you can get like refined versions of some of these things, the prebiotics, then we call them that sort of support those gut bacteria too. So things like inulin, um, glucoman and acacia root, um, psyllium husk, all that kind of stuff. So you can you can add that stuff in that can sort of be part of a protocol to help support a healthy gut. But in reality, you know, you don't need hope you get to a point where you don't need to take probiotics and you don't need to take these sort of refined um, prebiotics and you sort of you're getting all that stuff from your food. That's terrific. I mean, just to circle back there to the to the meat and, and, and fat diet, it's it's funny. I recently read something where, you know, lions will actually eat, you know, the organ meats, the brains and all these things first and often even leave the, uh, you know, the ribeye cut to the vultures. So it's, if you're out there and you are thriving on a meat and fat diet, just make sure you're, you're also tweeting out pictures of the organ meats that you're consuming. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, like in terms of like amino acid profile and micronutrients, that's really important. There's, there was this really great, you know, you'll probably heard of Bill Lagarcos. Yep. He runs the calories proper website. Um, he had this really nice article about animal probiotics. And basically they took, I think they had cheetahs and they fed cheetahs either um, just like basically ribeyes or they fed them whole rabbit carcasses. So you have like all the connected tissue, you have the bones and all that stuff. And, the, you know, the ones that the ones that ate those whole carcasses, they had 
kind of an increase in some of those bacteria we're talking about, like particularly the bifidobacteria. So you can maybe get some some prebiotics from animal foods, but you need to be, you know, eating um, eating sort of like all the grizzly bits in between, and that sort of that sort of gives you those probiotics from from an animal source. So you can't just eat ribeye; you need to eat all the other bits too. Terrific new goals for people as barbecue season uh, comes yeah. comes in here. Awesome, Tommy. Well, I want to respect your time. This is all fantastic stuff. So the last question here, can you give us a little bit of an insight into your morning routine? Are you, are you a coffee drinker? What's the, uh, how do you get started in the morning? Yeah. Um, so I have, a, like a, I, it would depend on, um, depend on work, depend on how much time we have. But generally the first thing I do is I get up, I take out Parker, our dog. So I, you know, like to make sure I can get sort of 10, 15 minutes walking outside early in the morning. Um, I usually do that barefoot. Um, I think there's there's some really interesting data on on grounding and, and health and you know some people might believe it some people might not and that's fine but I sort of even when it's snowing and raining I'm out there walking around barefoot getting muddy feet first thing in the morning um, then I'll come in I usually make I do make a coffee I do like coffee um, and then at the same time I'll make a smoothie um, which is something I've been able to do since I moved to the US just because I have access to, to much nicer ingredients than I did uh, living in Norway. Um, and that will usually be some frozen berries, lots of frozen vegetables, um, whatever sort of leftover veggies I have in the um, in the fridge. And then, you know, some I have some sort of vegetable powders and things that I sort of add into that. Um, usually some coconut milk too, uh, maybe an avocado. Blend all that stuff up and that's sort of my breakfast for the first half of the morning. Um, with my coffee and I'll sort of take all of that put it in put it in like a big mug and take it to work and that's sort of you know in the 45 minutes that I have in the morning before we go to work that sort of covers most of it so get outside and then then sort of blend up a load of plants and and have that as my first meal of the day fantastic those are great uh, great tips and great way to start the day uh, awesome, Tommy. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time out today. Where is the best place? If people want to keep on top of what you're doing and keep in touch, where are the best place for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, um, Nourish Balance Thrive, uh, which is yeah, the company we mentioned at the beginning. That's probably the best place to find me now. Um, so people can go to nourishbalancethrive.com. Uh, I just, uh, just started an email series um, that people might like. It's sort of like we call it the highlights email series. So you can go to nourishbalancethrive.com slash highlights and sign up there. And it's basically... Once a week, you get one thing that you can do to add to your daily routine or weekly routine that's going to improve your health. It's based on research, so I always include links to the papers. One thing that's kind of turned up in in sort of recently in the health world that we would like to give a different opinion on, usually based on sort of like the physiology or biochemistry or why sort of people aren't maybe understanding that right. And then just like one awesome thing, it's usually somebody doing something awesome, an awesome book, something that we liked. Uh, so not a huge amount to read, but sort of like give people some stuff, stuff to look at. So that will be, you know, they can try that if they're interested in that and give it, that will sort of stay on top of the research that I'm reading too. And the stuff that we're integrating into our protocols with athletes, cause that's sort of, that's a, that's a, an evolving process. We always try and improve, you know, in it and apply the, the latest research to, to people that come to us. Um, so that's, that's, that's probably the best way to, to follow what I'm doing at the time. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Tommy, for taking the time. For everyone else, thanks again for tuning in. As always, you can find all the links in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at drbubs. And if you enjoy the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. All right, until next time, thanks for listening. 
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.